Welcome to the Calling the Quarters podcast. I'm your host, Dean Jones. This is Season 1, Episode 10. On this podcast, we talk to pagans, witches, druids, shamans, animists, and more, asking them about their lives and the issues that are important to them. Before we get started, I want to ask a question. What is tarot? Tarot is a deck of 78 cards that have been used for centuries for divination, self-reflection, and spiritual growth. The cards are divided into two groups, the Major Arcana and the Minor Arcana. The Major Arcana cards represent major life lessons and archetypes, while the Minor Arcana cards represent more everyday experiences. Tarot can be used in a variety of ways. Some people use it for fortune-telling, while others use it for personal growth and insight. There is no right or wrong way to use tarot, and the best way to learn is to experiment and find out what works for you. Today, we're talking with Jack Shenick, who is a tarot expert and author of the book of all of her Wiccans and Tarot for Real Life. Jack has been using tarot for over 20 years, and he's a certified tarot reader and teacher. He is also the author of the book Queen of All Rituals, a biography of the goddess, which is out now. I'm going to take you to my interview with Jack Chenick. Welcome to the Calling the Quarters podcast. Today we're talking with author Jack Chenick. We're going to be talking with him about tarot and his new book, The Queen of All Witches. Jack, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your background. For those of us who are familiar with your work, can you talk a little bit about yourself and where you're from? Yeah, absolutely. So I am a Gardnerian Wiccan. Um, That is a particular tradition of Wicca uh, that goes back to the early days of Wicca in like the 1950s when the anti-witchcraft acts in England get repealed. A man named Gerald Gardner comes forward and claims to be a witch and he claims to be an initiate of a mystery cult. Uh, that is associated with witchcraft and uh, observes a particular set of seasonal mysteries as well as worshiping a goddess and a horned god. Uh, So that's the tradition of Wicca that I come out of. In addition to practicing Wicca, I also am a tarot reader. I've been reading tarot since I was like 11 years old. Uh, And I actually started my, you know, presence in the world of Wu uh, by reading tarot as a kid. And as I grew up, I got progressively more interested in magic, esotericism, and other related subjects. So tarot really was my gateway drug. As a Gardnerian, I want to ask you, I mean, how how influential is Gardnerian um, practice in most Wicca? I mean, I feel like like I, I studied Wicca for five years, and I feel like a lot of that was probably Gardnerian, but we just didn't call it that. Do you think it's more prevalent than we acknowledge? Uh, honestly, no. Um, I think there are certain ways in which people who... So a little bit of history. Gardnerian Wicca is the first form of Wicca that the modern world sees. Uh, so prior to the 1950s, Wicca as a religion was not really widely, you know, it wasn't a thing in the world. Um, Wicca goes back probably about 20 years earlier than that. Uh, So probably the earliest people practicing something we would recognize as Wicca were doing it in the 1930s and came together. Uh, Gerald Gardner was initiated into their group and then he publicized the phenomenon and Wicca made its way out into the wider world. But um, I think 
as far as actual practices go, a lot of what would be called Wicca today looks very, very different from Gardnerian Wicca. Uh, Gardnerian Wicca is initiatory, it's coven-based, uh, it's focused on the ecstatic experience of certain mysteries, um, and a lot of the Wicca that we see today has a very different ritual structure to it. So a lot of the times it's not initiatory, a lot of the times it's solitary and much more eclectic. Uh, and the actual ritual structures that you see people using are also going to diverge quite a lot. So there are similarities, there's a lot of overlap. In a lot of cases, the people who popularized other Wiccan movements um, were inspired by or had at one point been initiated into these more sort of coven-based initiatory forms of traditional Wicca. But by now, in terms of the actual practices, they're very, very different phenomena. So you said that you started reading tarot at a young age. So when, at, one, at what point did this um, start to lead to looking into different mysteries and where did Kabbalah and Wicca come in for you in your life? Yeah, so I started reading tarot very young. And as I was learning more about tarot, I was a broke kid. I didn't have a lot of money to spend. So I ended up looking for resources that were available to me for free. And when it comes to tarot, a lot of the resources that are available for free are documents that are associated with the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, which was a British secret society toward the end of the 19th century and start of the 20th century uh, that was incredibly influential in tarot, but also in ceremonial magic more broadly. And uh, they really radically reshaped the way that the modern world understands tarot. So most of the esoteric and occult symbols that we associate with tarot, most of the meanings we associate with the cards, come out of uh, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. And so I had started reading Golden Dawn documents to try to understand tarot better. And because the Golden Dawn was primarily a magical order, it was through reading that material that I got interested in esotericism, ceremonial magic, Kabbalah, and so on. And then eventually through that, I found my way into Wicca. So what effect did reading tarot have on your life? Did, did I imagine you probably use it in daily practice. And then you said like you've been doing readings for other people, but how did it kind of inform your life? Did it have any kind of larger um, effect on your perspective? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, tarot is more than anything else, a symbolic language that we use to understand the world. And sometimes we can use that in a predictive way. If you're you know, using tarot to try to find out what's gonna happen, whether you're gonna get a job or whether you're gonna you know, meet a spouse or whatever. But tarot is not always predictive. Um, and I think that more broadly, what tarot does is it gives us a symbolic framework uh, that we can use to you know, understand anything going on in our lives. Um, so as I grew up reading tarot and became more and more familiar with this particular symbolic language, I got in the habit of applying it as an interpretive lens to everything going on in my life. So I was using tarot not only when I was actively performing a tarot reading, but also just in terms of understanding 
the conflicts that were happening in my life with other people or with things I was struggling with at work or so on, uh, tarot provides a really ready symbolic language to process and understand those sorts of things. And I think it became a very helpful way of me uh, sort of doing introspective work, getting outside of myself and thinking about things going on in my life from maybe a little bit of a different perspective. Uh, so more broadly than just using tarot for daily divinatory readings or performing readings for other people, I think the biggest way in which tarot has shaped my life has been in changing the way that I perceive and interact with the world around me. Do you have specific techniques you use when you're reading tarot? Yeah, absolutely. There are some that are very widespread. So it is overwhelmingly common to the point of almost being universal to associate the four suits of the tarot with the four classical elements. So pentacles are associated with earth, cups are associated with water, wands are associated with fire, and then swords are associated with air. And that's something you're going to find in just about every tarot deck on the market. Sometimes you might see the elemental associations swapped around a little bit, but generally speaking, the four suits and the four elements line up. Uh, there are also numerological techniques that I like to use. Uh, a lot of the numerology that I use in tarot is derived from Kabbalah because Golden Dawn Kabbalistic magic was a really major influence on the development of the tarot deck as we understand it today. But then there are less, th those are techniques that are very much about correspondences. Uh, there are other techniques in reading tarot that are just more about uh, the way that you take in and process information. So uh, for example, uh, one of the things that I find incredibly helpful in a tarot reading is to look at the people in the reading, people in the spread, and which way are they pointing? Are they interacting with each other? Are they looking at each other? Are they looking away from each other? Are they looking sort of forward into the future or backward into the past? And what does that kind of visual information tell you about what's going on thematically in a reading? How can you take the visual language of the tarot deck and abstract out from it into something more symbolic that gives you information about your reading as a whole? Uh, so I mean, those are just a couple of techniques off the top of my head, but uh, there are lots of techniques ranging from the incredibly analytical and methodological to the uh, more sort of intuitive, freeform, you know, just going off of vibes sort of thing. Um, and I think it's really useful and important to bring both of those perspectives into a tarot reading. I've never read for somebody else, but I imagine that it would be difficult for me at least to kind of explain, I think, what I'm seeing in a spread to them. How do you um, cope with the translating what's in the cards to the person when they're just, you know, a common person who maybe have never had cards read to them before? The astonishing thing is that most people don't really care what's in the cards. They care about the message that you're giving them. Uh, oh, this good. is something that really surprised me when I started reading for other people. But a lot of the time, people just want the answer and they don't want you to explain, oh, well, you know, this is the Six of Pentacles, which is a card that's associated with like generosity and charity. All they care is, you know, yes or no, what's the answer to my question? Um, yeah. So a lot of the time I will explain a little bit on the way, you know, where I'm getting these ideas from and how I see it all fitting together, mostly so that the person I'm reading for knows I'm not just 
pulling it out of thin air. But I find that when I read for other people, there's actually a lot less explaining to do than I had initially thought there would be. Do you think that tarot can be underrated by you know um, many practitioners today? Do you think people respect it more now, or do you think it's become because it's so you can get tarot decks in many places, like Joanne's Fabric, for instance? Do you think people are you know less respectful? What do you think the attitudes are prevailing now? I think that tarot is a tool, and like any other tool, you get the results from it that are sort of commensurate with how well you're using it. Uh, so I, I don't think that people on a whole are less respectful of tarot or not using it as well or anything like that. I think that tarot being more accessible means that a lot more people are finding tarot and mm -hmm. some of those people are gonna stick with it and get really deep into it and really develop it as a skill. And other people are going to be much more casual with it. And that's okay, like either of those things is okay. It's entirely legitimate to want to pick up tarot and you know pull it out at parties as something fun to do every once in a while uh, and not be interested in going deeper with it. That's okay, that's allowed. Uh, but I think that it's more just a matter of like you get out of it what you put into it. And some people are going to really try to delve into tarot in depth and other people are gonna be happy with a little bit more of a service level interaction. Do you have any advice for somebody who's wanting to take up tarot seriously? Uh, yeah, it's like any other skill. You only get good at it by doing it. Um, yeah. This is, I, I tell this anecdote in my tarot book, Tarot for Real Life. Uh, when I first started reading tarot, I had this idea that I was going to read everything and figure it all out in my head before I ever started reading for other people. So I, I, I spent a lot of time studying, I memorized card meetings, I built up a really strong theoretical knowledge. But then once I actually started reading for people, it turned out that that theoretical knowledge was not nearly as useful as I thought it was. It was important, it helped, but I still found myself stumbling over my words and not sure how to connect things. And you know, it turns out that in order to get good at reading tarot, you have to just practice reading tarot, the same as riding a bike or learning to play piano or any other skill, the only way to get good at it is by doing it over and over and over again. And you're going to stink at it for a little while when you first start, that's normal. I wanna switch gears a little bit and talk about your book, Kabbalah for Wiccans. Can you describe this book to our listeners and what inspired you to write it? Yeah, absolutely. So Kabbalah for Wiccans was my first book. Um, the honest truth is that the reason I wrote it is because there was a pandemic and death was raining from the skies and I needed something to do other than check the news. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> more broadly, um, as I said earlier, I came into Wicca through tarot and then through Kabbalah and ceremonial magic. That was my background. That was my trajectory into Wicca. So when I came into Wicca, I was seeing a lot of people talking about and using ideas that were reflective of uh, ideas you find in the magic of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, which was a magical order and largely a Kabbalistic order. Kabbalah was sort of the keystone that they used to hold together the structure of the rest of their magic. And a lot of the things I was seeing in Wicca really looked like they reflected on what I had seen in Golden Dawn style Kabbalistic magic. 
And these two things really felt like they went together in a natural and easy way, partly because of a historical provenance, right? Partly because the Golden Dawn radically reshaped 20th century magic and Wicca happens to be 20th century magic. Um, but as I came into the Wiccan community, I found a lot of people who were uninterested in Kabbalah or worried that Kabbalah wasn't relevant to what they did or maybe you know, loosely interested in Kabbalah, but who didn't know where to start with it uh, and who, who didn't have a sense of like how they could study Kabbalah and pull out the parts of it that were interesting and relevant and directly related to the kind of magic that they already did. So I wrote this book partly as a little bit of an apologetic for Kabbalah to try to convince Wiccans that look like there's something here that might actually be worth your time to study. Um, and partly as a way for Wiccans who were interested in Wicca, or excuse me, who were interested in Kabbalah to dip a toe into the pool. Uh, so the part of the purpose of this book is to provide an introductory Kabbalah text that is written explicitly for a pagan audience that understands certain background assumptions that pagans are often making that you might not find elsewhere in ceremonial magic. And that gives a pagan readership sort of the need to know about Kabbalah so that at the very least, if you finish reading the book, you will understand what's going on if people are having a conversation about Kabbalah around you. And you might decide that you don't wanna go further with Kabbalah, but at the very least you'll have situated yourself relative to this thing that is one of the defining aspects of 20th century occultism. How do you define hermetic Kabbalah? That's a fabulous question. Uh, so Kabbalah itself, the word Kabbalah comes from a Hebrew root, which means to receive. Uh, Kabbalah originates in medieval Iberia as a form of Jewish mysticism. Uh, and it is a body of received wisdom that connects the Jewish people with their God. It involves a lot of uh, biblical exegesis, a lot of mystical uh, sort of interaction with uh, particular aspects of the Hebrew alphabet and particular Hebrew words that are taken to have mystical meanings in the context of Jewish religious practice. Um, it's a very specific and concrete thing. But what happens just about as soon as Kabbalah emerges onto the scene is that Christian missionaries see it and go, ooh, that's mine now, and sort of attempt to subsume Kabbalah into Christianity. Uh, and this was part of an ongoing attempt to sort of convert the Jewish population in Southern Europe at the time and to dilute or eradicate Jewish culture. But so very early on, as early as like the 10th century, Kabbalah is appropriated into Christian mysticism. And then from there, it works its way out into uh, European magic more broadly. So that by the time you get to the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, you have people who are using Kabbalistic concepts in magic and completely divorcing them of any religious context. Now, Jewish Kabbalah still exists, it's still alive, it's still thriving, um, but it's a very different thing than the kind of Kabbalah that the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn was practicing. Right? Jewish Kabbalah is Jewish mysticism. And what you see with the Kabbalah practiced by the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn is something that's using some of the same words, some of the same like diagrams and concepts, but that has a very heavily magical focus, 
uh, that is not focused on Jewish religion or on religion at all, really. Um, and even though it sort of, if you go back a couple hundred years, has its roots in this Jewish mysticism, it ends up being a very different thing. So when I talk about Hermetic Kabbalah specifically, I'm talking about that magical Kabbalah that we see being used by secret societies in the 19th century, as opposed to the Jewish mystical Kabbalah that belongs to Judaism as a religion. Right. Can you use the Kabbalistic tree of life in your individual practice? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is a thing I talk about a great deal in Kabbalah for Wiccans. So every chapter, uh, as I work through the tree of life, I talk about not only what the associated concepts are, but also how they might be directly relevant to a ritual or magical practice for an individual. Uh, so I have meditations on all the various aspects of the tree of life. Uh, I also have little rituals or pieces of ritual to show how these magical energies that you find on the tree of life might work their way into your magical practice or alternatively might already be present in your magical practice and you just hadn't thought to orient toward them in a Kabbalistic way. So I talk about, for example, the practice of casting a circle and calling the quarters and how that fits into a tree of life based sort of understanding of magic. Uh, I talk about things like sacrifice, things like making an offering to the gods and how that is something that could be understood in Kabbalistic terms and how you can bring a Kabbalistic perspective to all these various aspects of ritual theology and practice. All right, I wanna change tracks again. Sorry, uh, listeners, if this is uh, jarring. Uh, Queen of All Ritueries, A Biography of the Goddess is your newest book. Now that's gonna be out on Thursday of this week. Can we talk about this book and what inspired you to write it? I am so excited about this book. I love this book so much. Uh, so Queen of All Witcheries is a book about the goddess with the definite article there sort of being in scare quotes. Uh, if you spend time in pagan spaces, Wiccan spaces, even new age spaces, eventually you will hear people talking about the goddess. And usually when they talk about the goddess, they're talking about a very particular figure. She's a moon goddess. She's maybe associated with motherhood. She's associated with magic. She's a goddess of love and pleasure. She's also associated with the arts. She might have three different aspects as maiden, mother, and crone. She might be considered a triple goddess. Like there's a very particular figure that people have in mind. But that's a really interesting phenomenon because there is no goddess in the ancient world who's exactly like that. There are lots of goddesses who have various things in common with that figure that I've just described, right? There are moon goddesses in the ancient world. There are yeah. mother goddesses in the ancient world, but there is no one goddess in ancient paganism who is the goddess as I've just described her. And right. it turns out that that goddess is decidedly modern. She's a goddess that we only really start talking about, only really start worshiping in the modern world. So I wrote this book to try to get a better handle on who exactly this goddess is and where she came from. So it's exploring goddess worship, modern goddess worship, through a little bit of a historical lens and looking at, starting in about the mid 19th century, 
who were the people who started talking about the goddess? What were the ideas that they had about her? And what are the movements and the magical practitioners and the ideas about ancient paganism that all sort of came together to allow us to have this goddess in the modern world? You have several luminaries featured in your book. You talk about Charles Godfrey Leland, Margaret Murray, Dion Fortune, and Gerald Gardner, to name a few. What was the research like that you did for this book? And did you make any discoveries that surprised you? Yeah, so a lot of these figures are names that get tossed around a lot. A lot of them are names that people are familiar with. They're names that end up on recommended reading lists a lot of the time. So um, most of the time, if you are coming into witchcraft spaces and someone is giving you a recommended reading list, Charles Godfrey Leland's Aradia, the Gospel of the Witches is probably going to be on that list. Um, Gerald Gardner and Doreen Valiente were instrumental in sort of the formation and publicization of Wicca, right? These are figures who are generally very well known. And part of the, the work of this book was just bringing them all together and seeing how they were in conversation with each other. Both sort of more abstractly in the sense that they were building on ideas that had come before them. And we see, uh, you know, James Fraser being very influential on the ideas of Margaret Murray and Robert Graves and Gerald Gardner and so on, but also sometimes more literally. So we know, for example, that Margaret Murray was in direct correspondence with James Fraser when she was writing The Witch Cult in Western Europe. We know that Gerald Gardner met Alistair Crowley, although they only met once, they didn't have any kind of extended correspondence. But these are people who literally were in the same room as each other, and their ideas affected one another. And I think the research that went into this book was largely just about seeing those connections and seeing how there is this coherent story about the development of modern goddess worship that really emerges when you take all of these different influential texts and authors and ideas and pull them together into one place. The premise for this book is quite a big undertaking. Did this transform your current spiritual practice when you wrote this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, as I was sort of in the process of writing this book, I had a conversation with a friend who's in the Wiccan community and he said something to the effect of like, doesn't this undermine what you do? Don't, don't you feel like doing all of this historical research and seeing you know, that this idea about goddess worship originates in 1936 and this idea originates in 1948, like doesn't that take away from the magic of it all? And for me, the answer is pretty decidedly no. I actually feel quite to the contrary that um, doing this research and spending this time in getting to know the goddess through a historical lens has really enriched and deepened my practice, my devotion, my religious understanding of this figure, because I know her better now, right? The, the same way, like if you have a relationship with a human being and you, you know them, you understand lots of things about them, and then you meet their parents and you see where they came from and you're like, oh, I get this now. There, there's something about who you are that I sort of always had a sense of, but I really get 
now that I see where you've come from. And that's kind of my feeling about the goddess and about the purpose of this book is, uh, you know, I, I still worship the same goddess, but my understanding of why I'm worshiping her in this way, who she is and like where all of the things that matter about her came from is a lot deeper and a lot richer for having done this historical work. You're very prol prolific and you've written um, for other publications as well. You are writing for the new Llewellyn's book of the Witches um, Sun Sign books and the Witches Sun Sign series and you're contributed to the book Aries. Can you talk about your contributions to this and uh, what you've kind of discovered about writing about Aries, um, the sign of Aries? I'm an Aries and I really thought this publication was brilliant and really kind of energized my interest in um, astrology. So can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Um, so I'm also an Aries. Uh, this Witches' Sun Sign series is predominantly written by Evo Dominguez Jr., who's a fabulous author. And then for each book, he co-wrote the particular installment with a witch who is of the relevant sun sign. And he also invited contributions from a variety of other authors uh, for each sun sign. So I'm an Aries. I wrote a contribution to Aries Witch. And the piece I wrote is just a spell. Um, it's a tarot spell for Aries practitioner uh, that draws on the Two of Wands in the tarot. Uh, and for those who are listening who might be unfamiliar, the Two of Wands is a card in the tarot deck that is associated with the sign of Aries. And it's a card that's all about planning and ambition and sort of seeing the path ahead for yourself, seeing where you want to go and how you're going to get there. And a thing that I think about a lot, when, when I was first talking with Evo about contributing to this book, he said, you know, we're looking for people to contribute personal reflections or spells or meditations or things like that. And I said, I would really like to write a spell uh, to help Aries practitioners deal with one of the quintessential Aries problems, uh, which is that Aries is the baby of the Zodiac. Aries is the sign that kicks off the Zodiac. And Aries is very good at beginnings, but not so good at follow through. Right? The energy of Aries is this like fierce, fiery cardinal sign. It's very good at getting things off the ground and starting new projects. But Aries doesn't always have the longevity or the perseverance to stick with something and see it through to completion. So the spell I wrote for this volume is a spell to sort of hold yourself to a project and ensure that you will finish what you start because that's something that I felt uh, any Aries witch could benefit from. And it was really oh, yeah. fun to write. So I wanted to ask you some questions about your life as a witch, pagan, however you like to describe yourself. Um, what was the aha moment for you where you really kind of thought, this is who I am, this is the path I walk? Yeah, it was... Um, it was sort of a circuitous route to get there. I grew up in a very non-religious household. Uh, and about the time I left for college, I started really feeling the need for religion. I started feeling the need for ritual and symbolism and mythology. And so I fussed around with a couple of things. Um, I tried Hellenic polytheism and it really wasn't for me. I did some stuff, some sort of like abstract devotional stuff involving tarot cards just to scratch the itch of 
like trying to give myself ritual. And when I moved to New York, I attended a public circle for the first time. Um, I attended an open Yule ritual in New York City. And it was my first time being in a ritual with a lot of other people um, where, you know, a circle was cast and the quarters were called and magic was done. They did magic to, to celebrate the season. And there was something about that that was like, oh yes, this is for me. This is the thing that I want to be doing. And it was probably um, only about a month after that that I started reaching out to Gardnerian covens nearby me and eventually found the group that I'm now with. Have you ever had any difficulties in your life because of your spiritual practice? I've talked to many um, pagans, witches, and other, other paths about this. And most people have said they haven't had many problems, but some have. Um, they've had issues with relationships, with friends, with family. How about you? Did you have any difficulties through your life with uh, adopting the spiritual path? It's hell on my dating life. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so I think in particular, because I currently live in the world of academia, um, being non-religious is the default in academia. Yeah. So most of the people that I know, most of the people that I interact with are atheists. They're not religious. And that doesn't really take much of a toll on my friendships. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't come up all that much. And when it does come up, people are sort of confused, but you know, it's yeah. Yeah. not their circus. Um, but in terms of dating, you know, where you're trying to foster sort of more intimate relationships where you want to be a little bit more vulnerable and open and uh, sort of sincere about things that are really important to you, religion comes up. And that one definitely is a non-starter for a lot of people. Uh, not because people think it's satanic. I am lucky to be in an environment where I don't have to worry about people thinking I'm a Satanist. Uh, but I've had a lot of potential dating prospects uh, decide that the whole witchcraft thing was just too weird or too silly for them. And, you know, we ended up going our separate ways. So that's probably the chief difficulty that I've encountered. I'm very lucky in that I don't have to fear discrimination at my job and I don't have to fear any kind of retaliation from most of the people in my life. Uh, but yeah, you know, dating is definitely tough as a pagan. As a uh, male worshiping the goddess, I personally have found it to be a very wonderful thing that has really been almost indescribable in my spiritual life. I've had experiences that I find I have a hard time translating to most people when I talk to them about um, my spiritual practice. Because um, I find it was um, kind of like when we say epiphany, like it was this kind of thing that was overwhelming and kind of a shock to the system. When I had my first drawing down the moon, it was just, I think, one of my big life events, I, I would say. How about you? So with worshiping the goddess, how has it changed your life and kind of informed your life? Oh boy, that's a big question. Um, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's a, it's a good question. There are just lots of different ways to go with it. Yeah, I mean, I think for one thing, um, being involved in goddess worship and more specifically Wicca, but just because that's the aspect of goddess worship that I happen to be in, 
um, was really instrumental in me coming out as gay. Uh, being in a religious community where that felt safe, where that felt celebrated, uh, you know, in particular, there is um, there's a very famous piece of liturgy written by Doreen Valiente called The Charge of the Goddess, uh, where one of the lines that she writes is, all acts of love and pleasure are my rituals, right? All acts of love are sacred to the goddess. And the idea that being gay was something that could be sacred, was something that could be worth celebrating uh, in the religion of the goddess was really important for me. And it really helped me with coming out. Uh, so I would say that's one of the really big ones. In another sense, worshiping the goddess has restructured my entire life. I mean, you know, I, I would not be who I am today if I weren't involved in goddess worship. Um, and I think so much of the impetus for me to constantly grow, to constantly change, to think about who I am in relation to other people and to see how that's always evolving comes in large part from uh, the reflective and introspective work that I do because of the religious communities that I'm involved in. You know, if you worship a goddess of transformation, if you worship the moon and she keeps changing her phase, uh, it's gonna make you aware of the ways in which you yourself are always continuing to change. And I think that's really important. So it's the librarian in me that has, asks this next question. Um, were there any writers that were the most important to you as you're coming up as a, um, as a pagan? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the honest truth is uh, James Fraser and the Golden Bough. I understand it's a horrible book. There's so much wrong with this book. Uh, as a piece of scholarship, there are lots of ways in which it is outdated, in which it fails in which James Fraser was reaching for universal conclusions and completely neglected the particularities of the people and the cultures that he was writing about. And most of the time he hadn't even interacted with those people in those cultures. So like, there's so much wrong with The Golden Bough, but it was right. also such an important book for me. Uh, and it remains such an important book for me. Uh, so The Golden Bough is, is really like the book for me. If I was trapped on a desert island and I could only bring one pagan book with me, that's the book that I would bring. Uh, but then I think, you know, more broadly, a lot of the well-known Wiccan authors uh, have had obviously a significant impact on my own life. So Gerald Gardner, Doreen Valiente, Patricia Crowther, uh, Lois Byrne, Janet and Stuart Farrer, Deborah Lipp uh, is my initiator and is also a Wiccan author. And so reading some of her books was very important to me in my early days in the craft. Um, I mean, it still is, but like it was particularly influential on me when I was reading those books, just as I was starting out. Uh, so uh, there, there are so many figures who have been really critically important to me. But if I had to narrow it down to one, it would be George, uh, James George Fraser with The Golden Bough. What was it like for you to see your books in print when you first got those galley copies for your first book and even the, the ones that followed? What was that like for you? How did that kind of uh, change things for you? Oh, it's completely surreal. I will never get over the feeling of holding a book that I have written in my hands. Uh, it's, it's incredible. It's a magnificent feeling. And it's also terrifying, you know, because um, you know that 
once a book is real, once it's out there in the world, people are going to read it and react to it in ways that you have no control over. And there are people who are going to read the book who like know me and who have heard me talk about these things before and are already familiar with what I have to say. But there are also people who are going to read this book who are absolute strangers and have never heard of me before. And that's exciting. That's really wonderful. The opportunity to share my ideas, my thoughts, my research with the world. But it's also incredibly intimidating, uh, especially because you know that not everyone is going to like what you have to say. And, you know, you like you develop a thick skin because you have to. um, But it's always terrifying, you know, exhilarating and terrifying at the same time to put something out into the world and to just you know, leave it there for people to read and take from whatever they're going to take. Jack, what's next for you? Well, I am currently in the process of trying to finish my PhD. That's that's the number one item on the agenda. Uh, I mean, the final throes of my dissertation. Uh, so I'm defending my PhD sometime this year, which will be very, very exciting. And then after that, I'm not entirely sure. Um, I have recently signed a contract for another book, which is very exciting. It's going to be another tarot book. Um, I don't like to talk about specifics of that, like until the manuscript is written. Uh, right. But I'm really, really excited for that project. I think it's going to be something fun and a little bit different. Uh, it's going to bring a perspective on tarot that um, I really love and am excited to explore and didn't have the opportunity to explore in my previous tarot book. So that's gonna be great. That's gonna be really, really fun. Um, And then other than that, just, you know, continuing with my magic, continuing with uh, Wicca and meeting with my coven and just doing my thing. Jack, I want to thank you for being on the podcast. For listeners, we're going to include a link to the new book in the bio. You can uh, go on and pre-purchase that now. I advise you to do that. And uh, Jack, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. That was my conversation with Jack Chanick. His book, Queen of All Witcheries, is out currently. We have a link to it in the bio. And you could buy it from all better bookstores. Next week, we'll be speaking with prolific author Evo Dominguez Jr. They are author of Casting Sacred Space, The Core of All Magical Work, Spirit Speak, Knowing and Understanding Spirit Guides, Ancestors, Ghosts, Angels, and More, Keys to Perception, A Practical Guide to Psychic Development, Practical Astrology for Witches and Pagans Using the Planets and the Stars for Effective Use, and The Four Elements of the Wise, Working with the Magical Powers of Earth, Air, Water, and Fire and many more books. We'll be speaking with Evo next week. Until that time, I hope you all have a lovely week, and we'll see you then.